You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes, to the 10th chapter. When you found your place, let's begin with a word of prayer before we start. Our Father, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide as we look at your word. Grant that it may not return void, but accomplish that which you have purposed in our hearts. We pray that you would change us, reform us, convict us, encourage us. Help us to see our response to this world. Help us to live in light of your truth. We pray that through our time in your word, as we observe wisdom and folly, that you would grant to us minds and hearts that may recognize folly. And you may grant also to us the the strength and the diligence and the perception to pursue wickedness, or sorry, to pursue righteousness and to pursue wisdom so that you might be glorified through us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We're going to be looking today at verses 4 through 7. Uh, Wisdom is a very rare thing, especially when you compare it to folly. It seems as if foolishness abounds everywhere. Everywhere we look is foolishness and folly. And wisdom, when you find and you're able to find genuine, true, godly, discerning, biblical wisdom, it is so rare that you feel like you have stumbled upon a left-handed leprechaun riding a unicorn, holding a four-leaf clover, singing praises to the British. It's that rare. Biblical wisdom is, if we were able to put a price tag on wisdom and folly, foolishness would be free because there is so much, there's such an abundance of it that it's like oxygen. It's, it's literally in our culture, in our world, it's what we breathe. You, you don't go into a restaurant and they don't charge you for oxygen because it's everywhere. You can't charge for oxygen. But wisdom is so rare that if you put a price tag on it, it would be something akin to gold or silver or precious stones because It's not common. It's not everywhere. It's not as if a lot of people have wisdom. But it seems that a lot of people around us have folly and are fools. And I don't mean this to be a pejorative or to sound like a put-down, but here it is. We are surrounded by fools. Everywhere. We are surrounded by fools. We are ruled by fools. Everywhere there are fools. If you turn to the entertainment industry, this almost goes without saying, the artists, the musicians, the actors, the entertainers, the, the playwrights, the performers, the producers, the directors, the musicians, all of them, in a biblical sense, are fools. Folly is everywhere. Look at the, look at the education establishment from kindergarten all the way through four years of college, eight years of college, with rare exception, and I mean rare, rare exception, the faculty and staff of the universities of our country are in biblical terms complete fools. They're not just, they don't just not recognize God's truth. In many cases, they're openly hostile to God's truth. For they see everything, all of light, through a secular, humanistic, Darwinian, postmodern, progressive mindset that is completely devoid of God's truth and God's perspective. Now, keep in mind the biblical definition of a fool that I gave you last week when we were meeting back in the gymnasium. 
Folly is at its heart a lack of an appropriate fear of God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. That's what foolishness is and folly is. It is a lack of an appropriate fear of God. Philip Graham Ryken gave the definition that I gave you last week. I'm going to repeat it because I think this is as good of a definition of foolishness and a fool as you could possibly find. Philip Graham Ryken says, A fool is a man or woman characterized by impulsive disobedience, self-centered arrogance, and a rash disregard for the holiness of God. Self-centered arrogance impulsive disobedience, and an irrational disregard for the holiness of God, or a rash disregard for the holiness of God. Therefore, fools are all around us, because every unbeliever in a biblical sense is a fool, because they reject God's truth. It is those who are righteous and who have embraced God's truth who are the wise. And so we are surrounded, literally, by fools. Now Solomon addresses in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 a particular type of fool and a particular type of folly. And we see here in chapter 10 the results of this folly and how it is that we are to, to respond to this folly. What is it that we are to do, given that we are surrounded by fools? In, in entertainment, in education, in the newsrooms, through the media, what do we do? We have two options. First, we can run and hide and cloister ourselves away and try and separate ourselves from everything that is in the world, all of the movies and all of the music and all of the literature and the newsrooms and the broadcasts and everything, and, and sort of gather together in our own little holy huddle, an echo chamber as it were, and try and wash ourselves away of the sins of the world. We could do that, or we could aggressively engage the foolishness by walking in wisdom and handling foolishness wisely. And what do you think of those as a biblical response to the foolishness of the world? It is not as the monks did in the early centuries of the Christian church. Our response should not be to cloister ourselves away and to separate ourselves with our own little group of people and huddle together and sit in our corners and, and suck our thumbs, hoping that we won't be exposed to any kind of foolishness. That's not a biblical response. The biblical response, and the one that Solomon gives us here, is to engage the fool, to engage the, the folly of the world with a biblical wisdom in a gracious demeanor. So in verses 4 to 7, we have in verse 4 how it is that we respond to a particular kind of fool, a ruler who is angry against us. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see the results of what happens in a world where foolishness is exalted by the king or when the king is a foolish man. So that's Solomon's subject today. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 3. We saw what a biblical definition of a fool is. We looked at how how weighty folly is, how powerful it is, that a little bit of folly goes a long way. And we saw that a fool, foolishness is so powerful, that a fool, even when he was walking down the road, cannot help but demonstrate his folly. He shows to everybody, he demonstrates to everyone his foolishness, because that is how potent foolishness is. And Solomon is wanting us to walk in wisdom. He's wanting to encourage us to walk in wisdom. So that, that is our passage today, verses 4 to 7. Let's look first of all at verse 4. How is it that we respond to a foolish ruler? Look at verse 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. If the ruler's temper rises against you. Now, Solomon is describing here one of the marks of a fool. Uh, anger is one of the marks of a fool. Now, if fools are everywhere, if they surround us, it is highly likely, since fools are everywhere, that one of them, somewhere, is going to make it into the highest offices of the land. We could expect that, right? I mean, the odds are great that in a world where fool, folly is abundant and where fools are everywhere, that one of them, two of them, maybe three of them will get elected to Congress. Maybe one or two of them with a godless orientation will sit on the Supreme Court. Or that one of them might even slip into the office of the presidency. We might expect that, right? Well, now Solomon gives us 
how is it that we respond when we have a foolish ruler who is given to anger? So he describes a ruler who is angry, whose temper rises against you, and then how it is that we are to respond to that. One of the marks of a fool is an outburst of anger. Now we're not talking about, if you're somebody who occasionally you get mad, something happens and things aren't going your way, it's one of those days, and you get frustrated, and you immediately recognize it as sin, That's, that doesn't necessarily make you a fool. A fool is somebody who is who is rash and his anger is perpetual. This guy is always mad. No matter what happens, he's going off about it. He is, he is out of his mind angry about it, and it is an uncontrollable anger. That is the mark of a fool. Now, not, this is to be distinguished from a righteous anger. There is a righteous anger. There is, a, there is an anger that is not sin. When you hear about an innocent individual being abused or violated, and you get angry about that, that is not sin. When you, when you hear that the name of God is blasphemed, or God is maligned, or His truth is shunned, or He is mocked, or false doctrine is taught, and you're angry about those things, that is not an unbiblical or unrighteous anger. Now you can respond to righteous anger in an unbiblical or unrighteous fashion. So you can be righteously angry with a righteous indignation because somebody else's, uh, somebody else has been violated or God's word has been violated or God's truth has been maligned or his character or he's blasphemed in some way when some harm is done to others or to God and we get indignant over that because we love the truth. That is a righteous anger. But then you can respond to that or express righteous anger in an unrighteous way. And that we ought not to do. So Solomon, don't, don't think that all anger is unrighteous. That's not the case. There, is, there are times when we are righteously indignant, but we handle that anger in a righteous manner, in a God-ordained and pleasing manner. But Solomon here, when he talks in verse 4 about the king whose anger rises against you, his temper rises against you, he's describing a foolish man who has these flashes of quick temper. He is irrational, and it, he is angry, and it, you find yourself on the receiving end of that. So that is the mark of a fool, anger. Let me give you a couple of verses. Proverbs 12, verse 16. A fool's anger is known at once. See, boom, just like that. A fool's anger is known at once. You're having a great time. You're having a discussion. And you say something, you do something that's completely innocuous, and all of a sudden this guy is off the charts angry. He goes from being happy to unbelievably angry in a heartbeat. That's the mark of a fool. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Proverbs 14.29 He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 15.1 A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. So we're talking about a king who is, who is himself a fool. He is marked by this anger that characterizes a fool. His temper rises against you. Now notice that Solomon seems to be describing a very narrow situation. He seems to be describing you being in a position where you are face to face with the king or the ruler and he gets angry at you. So Solomon here might have in mind in a very narrow sense people within his court or people within within the king's uh, reach of influence who would know the king personally and they find themselves on the receiving end of the king's anger and hot temper. That might be what Solomon is describing. And I think that that is specifically what Solomon is describing, but think in terms more broadly of the application of this. There are people who sit in positions of authority over us, and they are numerous, and the principles here of what Solomon says, uh, how we are to deal with this, those principles are widely applicable. You might be dealing with a a hot-tempered employer, or a hot-tempered owner of a business, or a hot-tempered boss, a hot-tempered employee. You might deal with a hot-tempered spouse, who is a biblical fool, or children, or a neighbor, or the head of the homeowners association. I mean, there are all kinds of possible positions. Your your overseer at work, 
Right? So that the principles of this are broadly applicable, even though Solomon is describing a very narrow situation. So you find that the king's anger rises quickly against you. What do you do? Verse 4. Do not abandon your position. Now that this is good advice. What Solomon is giving here is, is sound advice in terms of if you, if you find yourself facing a king who is angry with you, you imagine the courtroom, the court of a king. And it suddenly his anger flashes and one of his nobles immediately says, that's it, I'm done, I'm out of here, I quit, time out, I'm gone, and he leaves. What does that say to the king? What it says to the king is that maybe this guy is guilty and he has done what I think he has done for the, and I'm angry with him, with him justly. This is good advice, just compose yourself. Right? Verse four, do not abandon your position, meaning do not quit your job, do not abandon your rank, do not leave your post. That's the idea. Don't just in a flash of anger in response to his anger, up and quit and do something irrational. So you, you stay at your post and you hold your line, verse 4, because composure allays great offenses. And the NIV there has a, a bit of a different translation when it's talking about uh, great offenses. The NASB uses the word offenses. The NIV uses the word errors. And I think the NIV uses, uh, let me see how does it, if a ruler's anger arises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. That's the NIV. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. And uh, the idea there is, at least in one that, well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I just read the NIV, but that was wrong according to the other NIV that I, somebody must have updated the NIV and not told me. And the one I'm reading right now is an updated one. Okay, if you're reading an old NIV, now that this whole sermon has completely gone off the rails, as if it were ever on the rails to begin with, if you're reading the old NIV, I think it uses the term errors there. It lays to rest great errors or many errors. Okay, the word is actually a word that could should be translated offenses. It's better translated offenses. It would be even better translated sins or guilt because that's the idea. So here's the idea. Composure in that situation puts to rest great sins and great guilt. So what does Solomon mean by that? What he means is that when the king's anger rises against you and you respond in anger, the king is still going to be angry in sinful way, but if you can, through composure and gentleness and gracefulness, deal with the king, and the king calms down, if he restrains himself and calms down, you have put to rest, you have laid aside and put to rest his great sin. And not only that, but you've also put to rest your own sin. Because if you respond in anger to the king's angry, now you have two sinners just shouting at each other. Right? This is why at the end of chapter 9, Solomon says, wisdom is better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Yeah, you have the ruler who is shouting and all the fools who surround the ruler who are shouting and all you have is a whole lot of sinful anger going on and that doesn't do anything. But if, if you are able through wisdom to deal with the anger of a king in such a way, by graciousness and, and, and wisdom to deal with that so that your composure in that situation is able to lay to rest his sinful anger. You have not only, you have not only calmed and laid to rest his sin, but you have calmed and laid to rest even your own sinful heart so that you're not responding with a sinful heart to the sinful heart or the sinful actions of the king. So that is verse 4. That is how we are to respond to the sinful anger of the king. We lay to rest those sins. Proverbs 16, verse 14. The fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. So Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 15. Forbearance. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Forbearance and gracefulness. Somebody responds to you with anger, Biblical response to that in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is not to respond in like manner, but to, with gracefulness and composure, don't immediately abandon your position, abandon your post, 
through composure and gracefulness, seek to lay to rest that sin so that the situation doesn't become even more sinful. So that's how we deal with a sinful ruler. Now let's look at the results of what happens when somebody who is a fool is put into positions of leadership. This is where it really gets fun. Verse 5, There is an evil I have seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Let me break that down a little bit for you. Verse 5, there is an evil I have seen under the sun. Now this is Solomon giving to us an illustration, an anecdote, a story of some sort, an observation that he has made under the sun. So this is not, this is not Proverbs in proverbial form. This is an observation that Solomon has made. It is something that he has seen. And he is describing here a ruler that comes forth, an error that comes forth from the ruler. That is that the per- person who is in a position of leadership commits an error. Now, unlike the word In the older NIV that I mentioned earlier, translated error in verse 4, this doesn't describe sin or guilt. It's not talking about an offense at all. The word for error here just means something that happens through an oversight of something. It's a mistake. It's not as if this is intentionally done with a malicious intent or, or wickedness. It is not something that he is trying to do to harm other people. It's just by a matter of an overstay, uh, oversight and a mistake, uh, something accidental, something not thought through the consequences. The king ends up doing something, verse 6. He sets folly in many exalted places. So this is the ruler who does this. So you have a ruler who is that king, and because he is a fool, he sets over other people in exalted positions within his administration and over his nation. He sets in those exalted positions men marked by folly, men who are fools. Now the king doesn't do this because he is intending to undermine his own administration. The king doesn't do this because he is intending to do harm to his subjects. The king does this, it's an error. It's an oversight. He's just not thinking about it. Now, how... It's difficult to imagine a situation where you would have somebody in an exalted position of leadership who would appoint a fool to a, other positions of leadership, right? Or is it not that difficult to imagine? Just this last week, the president of our country, and I'm not, I'm not picking on him because, listen, everything I'm about to say goes back generations, okay? But just this last week, the president of our country made a rash decision and appointed somebody as the director of communications or something like that. Within 24 hours, he was on record with a profanity-laced tirade against other people in the administration. And what a mark of folly. And then 10 days later, he's gone again. This is what happens when fools appoint fools. When biblical fools appoint biblical fools. That's what you get. So it's not difficult for us to imagine this happening. And it's not that, it's not that anybody in the administration intends to do evil. There is an oversight where this guy slips under the radar. Listen, fools flock with other fools. Does that make sense? Birds of a feather flock together. So if you were a fool, you end up, you tend to end up surrounding yourself with fools who will tell you what you want to hear. They will tell you what looks right to you and what sounds right to you. And as a fool, you are unable to discern biblical wisdom. So you end up, when somebody gives you something that's biblical truth and wisdom, you kind of kick your head to the side. I'm not sure where that came from or what that means. That doesn't sound right. You know what sounds right is the sentiments of my own heart. So you end up appointing people and gathering around you people who tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you are used to hearing. They tell you what sounds right to you because to the mind of a fool, his own way sounds right to him. So then when he appoints somebody to a position of leadership, it will be somebody who is a fool because they will have folly and they got to that position because they were around an individual who himself was a fool and could not discern biblical wisdom. This is not poking fun at any administration or any president or any congressman or any Supreme Court justice. This is just the way of life as it is under the sun. 
This is what happens. Right? The king exalts folly to any, any kind of exalted position. He lifts it up in verse 6. He sets it in many exalted places. And this is the opposite of what we would want to happen. This is the opposite of what we expect to happen. Biblically, fools should be paid no heed, no attention. They should not be given positions of responsibility. They should not be given positions of authority. They should not be given positions of influence at all. They should be rejected. They should be kicked out, booted out, paid no attention, pushed off to the outskirts of society, not put in positions of leadership. So what Solomon is describing here is the exact opposite of what we would expect and the exact opposite of what we would want. Just as it is in the second half of verse 6 when he says, while rich men sit in humble places. This is the opposite of what would be expected. This is the opposite of what you would want in that culture. You wouldn't want the rich men sitting in humble places. Now in order for us to understand what's being described here, we need to step back and hear this with Jewish ears. Now in our cultural context, we have a, a culture and a nation that hates the rich. Right? They're the, the evil 1%. We want to overturn them, take all their stuff, and give it all to the rest of us who work so hard to make them wealthy. That's, that's our current mindset in our nation. Okay? That, that is a perspective that is built upon greed. It's an unbiblical, covetous perspective. That's what it is. That's not a biblical idea or a mindset. But that's where our culture is at. So if you read that from our culture's mindset, what you hear is, it's about time that those dirty 1% sat in the humble places. Right? While the rest of us finally got to little flip of the action here. Finally get what we deserve, what we've been working so hard for. That's how you would read that. But that's not how a Jew would understand that. Nor is that how Solomon intends it. In that culture, the rich were the people who had the means and thus the responsibility to help and care for others. They were hard workers. They were the people of knowledge, the people of skill, the people of ability, the people of means. And when you put them into positions in that society, they would be able to use those means to help other people. You didn't want the rich, or the wise, as it's used here, uh, sitting in the humble places while fools ruled the land. That was the complete opposite of what you wanted. You wanted the wise, which in that culture were the rich. You wanted the wise, the rich, the people of means, who could use that position of power and influence to help other people and to benefit the land. That's what you would want. So Solomon says when you exalt folly to these high places, the rich, the wise, the ones you want in those high places, end up sitting in humble places. Let me, let me make it as real and personal and modern day as I possibly can. Let's say that you walk into the doctor's office and you have a tumor that though it is not, uh, though it is not uh, aggressive and is not going to kill you right away, if, it, if you don't deal with it, it will kill you. Your chances of living are very, very, very good. They just need to do a, a surgery to remove the tumor from your brain. Okay, So you walk in for like your second or third visit. The doctor's supposed to prep you on all of the stuff necessary for preparing for surgery on the next day. And so you're there in the doctor's office. And in comes not the doctor, but the janitor. And you say, well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm here to tell you what we're going to do tomorrow when I cut your head open. Is it? Wait, wait, wait. Where's the doctor? Well, the doctor and I, we decided we were going to switch positions for the week. So he's cleaning the toilets and sweeping the hallway and emptying the garbage. And I'm going to do all the operations this week. So tomorrow when you show up at the hospital, here's what you should expect. Would you, would you be comfortable with that? No, you'd say, I want the right person in the right place doing the right job. Right? I don't want this complete reversal where the fool has the position of exaltation, where he is honored, and where while the rich and the people of means and intellect have the humblest or lowliest of places. In our, in our culture, we have exalted folly, and in cultures where they exalt folly and put fools in positions of leadership, what happens? What can we expect? Verse 7, I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Now, what is that describing? I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. What you get when you put, put, put folly in exalted places or set fools in exalted places 
is a complete reversal of the natural order. That's what Solomon is describing. In that day, you rode a horse because you were wealthy, because you were royalty, because you were a person of means and influence, and the slaves were the ones who walked on the land next to the princes. While the princes rode the horses, the slaves walked on the land and attended to the prince's needs. So what Solomon is describing is a complete reversal of the entire societal order. If you were a Jew listening to this and reading this in Solomon's day, here's what you would hear. We have poor people riding in private jets while the celebrities and the statesmen are riding in coach. That's what you would hear. If, if I described a world in which that was happening, you would say, that is not a world I want to live in. That is not a world where anything is sane. That is a world unlike anything I have ever experienced. That is a complete upsetting of the societal order. Now, it's not difficult to imagine that when, that when Solomon is describing this, a Jew would hear a description of a world turned upside down, topsy-turvy. This is unlike anything they had ever thought or experienced. Slaves walking, uh, riding horses while princes walk on the land next to them. That is, that is a world upside down. Do you ever get the sense that you live in such a world? Where light is darkness and darkness is light. Where right is wrong and wrong is right. Where things are not as they should be. Where the entire moral, social, intellectual, rational and logical world has been entirely flipped up on its head and you're not sure what side of the, of the table you land on? Imagine, if you will, a world in which you woke up tomorrow morning and you woke up in a world where if you thought there were two genders, male and female, you would be called an intolerant, unenlightened bigot. Imagine such a world. Imagine a world in which if you believe that the best environment for a child to grow up in is a loving home with one man and one woman, married for life, who love one another, that you would be thought something akin to a child abuser or an intolerant bigot who maybe should be lynched. Imagine a world in which if you just woke up tomorrow and you lived in a world where marriage was no longer between a man and a woman, where we just defined it however we want to. There's no fixed order. God has not decreed anything. And so marriage can be two men, two women, two men and a dresser, two women and a telephone post, uh, three men and a platypus, however you want to define it. It is whatever it is. It's just something that we make up however we feel today. Imagine that you lived in such a world. Imagine that you lived in a world where moral monsters like Che Guevara and Nelson Mandela were considered heroes while the people who provide for us goods and services and make money from that are considered the villains. Imagine that you live in such a world. Imagine that you live in such a world where everything profane was exalted as if it were right and good and true and it were promoted. And everything that is good and holy and righteous and true is disparaged and hated and spit upon and rejected. I'm taxing, taxing the capacity of your imagination right now in describing such a world. If you lived in such a world, you would know that we are living in a world where folly has been exalted, where we are ruled by fools. And I'm not picking on this administration in the last eight months. That's not what this is about. You guys know that I'm not a liberal or a progressive in any sense at all. I'm not picking on the current environment. We have been ruled by fools as long as I have been alive, with rare, rare exception at every level of government. This is generations. What happens 
when you are ruled by fools, and folly is exalted to the highest places in the land. What happens is those fools end up educating the next generation and making them foolish. And that generation ends up voting in people who are foolish, who educate the next generation to make sure that they are foolish, who end up voting in the next generation of fools. That is how it goes. That is the downward spiral. That's what happens when we exalt folly. And listen, that's what happens in a nation that is under the judgment of God. Romans chapter 1. That's what you get. When you are ruled by fools, you get a nation that is under the judgment of God. We're, we don't know right from wrong. We don't know up from down. We don't know black from white. And anybody who says that they do, that understand, thinks that they have a claim to understanding what is real, you're called the fool. While what is promulgated as wisdom is utter and complete folly and a complete rejection of God's truth and God's standard and God's word. See, people who are, whose hearts are not oriented toward God who have in their hearts a moral deficiency so that they are not oriented toward God at all. Instead, they are oriented away from God. And as we saw in verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, the fool's heart directs him or drives him toward that goal. He does what he does because he is what he is. And because he is what he is, he does what he does. Fools do fools. Fools do folly. Fools do foolishness. They do foolish actions. And they exalt them to the highest places in the land. And when that happens, the whole societal order is all turned upside down. And that is what we get. And that is where we're at. So what do we do as Christians? We recognize folly for what it is. And our goal, our drive, our desire, our intention, what God would have us to do is to intentionally engage that folly in a gracious manner. Don't abandon your post with composure you will lay great offenses, put it to rest, handle it with wisdom. That is what he has called us to do, to walk in wisdom. It's interesting to note that what Solomon describes here feels like it was written yesterday, right? I mean, this is how you would describe, if you were to, to try and describe in a proverb the world in which we live, verse 7 would be it. If slaves ride in horses while princes walk on, on the land next to them. You read that as a Jew in Solomon's day, you would say, that's a world that I cannot even imagine. That is a world completely upside down. You don't know what is true in that kind of a world. And yet, here we are. But is there anything new under the sun? No, there's not, right? This was going on in Solomon's day. I sometimes wonder if he had in mind some of the people that he had appointed to positions of power when he wrote this, right? And that, and that Levi Shmuley is over in the corner reading this thinking, hey, is he talking about me? Am I the fool? There's an example right from the life of Solomon, not in the life of Solomon, but right after Solomon died, actually. Do you remember the story of Rehoboam? Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Do you remember what Rehoboam did? Some people, when Rehoboam became king, and he, he, he took over the United Kingdom from, from Solomon, who got it from David, and when Rehoboam became king, he was confronted by some of the people in the land. They came to him and they said, look, your dad's building projects, the taxation, it has been heavy. It's been heavy upon us. We can't do this. Can you just lighten the load? I mean, we are a nation at peace. We have prosperity. We have we've built everything. We don't need anything else. Can't we just sit back and enjoy the wealth and just enjoy life? So lighten the load a bit. And Rehoboam said, all right, I'll consult some people. Go away and come back to me in a couple of days. So he brought in the older men from his father's administration, from Solomon's administration, and said, look, this is what the people said to me. What's your advice? And the older men said, do it. Lighten the load. Reduce the taxation. Lighten up the burden. And the old men said, if you do that, the kingdom will be yours forever. You will unite the people under you. That was good, solid wisdom. Just, just lighten the load. People will love you. The entire nation will love you. Ah, that didn't sound good to Rehoboam. So he called in the young men that he'd gone to school with, the people that he knew really well. He said, look, this is what the people have said to me. What's your advice? And you know what the young men said? Oh, you double down. You ratchet this up to 10 times. You, you tell them, if you think my father's workload was, was great, you haven't seen anything yet. 
I'm going to make it worse than that. My little finger is going to be thicker than my father's leg. That's how bad it's going to be. I'm going to take what my father did and we're going to go to the nines with it. Rehoboam said, that sounds like wisdom. That sounds like good advice. So the people came back to Rehoboam and what did he say to him? We're doubling down. It's going to get worse. You know, I was bad under my dad. It's going to get worse even now. And how did they respond? Those people walked away and said, what do we have to do with the house of David? And from that moment, the kingdom was split. Now listen, here's the implications of that. Because that kingdom was split, David had united the kingdom. He had brought all of, the, all of the tribes together. He had united the kingdom. He had handed that kingdom off to Solomon. David had ruled over it for 40 years. Solomon ruled over it for 40 years. There was peace and prosperity in the days of Solomon. Everything was golden. In that moment, that one foolish decision, because Rehoboam exalted folly and foolishness to the highest places in the land, his advisors, and he took their advice, that one act of foolishness dissolved the Davidic kingdom. What David and Solomon had ruled over for 80 years was lost overnight. Overnight. And because of that, the house of David, the, the kingdom of Israel was never united again. And the northern kingdom ended up falling to the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom ended up falling to the Babylonians in 586 BC. And the nation was destroyed because of that one act of folly. That one act of folly, everything went downhill from there. And that is a great illustration of the passage that we're talking about here. It just takes a few flies to ruin the, the, the perfumer's ointment. A little foolishness outweighs wisdom and honor. Verse 3. One sinner can undo so much good. That one act of folly by Rehoboam ended up institutionalizing idolatry for the northern kingdom. Because Jeroboam took it over and set up the idols. So he, by that one act of folly, destroyed what his father and his grandfather had built and institutionalized idolatry, split the kingdom, and that act ended up putting both kingdoms into captivity. Foolishness is powerful, isn't it? Just a little bit goes a long ways. So what would we do? What should we do? We should respond to foolishness with wisdom and graciousness. We should handle it in a Christ-honoring way. We don't revile when others revile us. We don't spit back when others spit at us. We handle and take the folly of the world and we gently and graciously present to it truth. Is that going to correct everything? No, that's no guarantee. But it is what God would have us to do. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your mercy and for Your Word and for the comfort that comes in realizing that there is nothing new under the sun, that what we are seeing unfold around us today in a nation that is under Your judgment is something that You have preordained, something that You have, have intended for the good of Your people, for the glory of Your great name. We thank You that we can trust You in the midst of all of it and look to Your hand to deliver us in Your time from it. It is our desire that You would be glorified through Your church and through Your people as we respond to the foolishness of a mad and insane world around us and handle it in a way that is demonstrative of the character of Christ and the glory of your name. Give us wisdom in these things and instill these truths in our hearts. Bury them deeply, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.